Welcome to the first episode of Inside Infrastructure, an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast supported by PwC Australia. I'm Adrian Dwyer and I'm the CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. And I'm Ilya Zak from PwC's Infrastructure and Urban Renewal team. Ilya and I have worked together a few years ago and we've, um, we've stayed mates ever since. And we've always been curious about infrastructure and the stories behind some of the major nation-building infrastructure we see. Increasingly, the opening of a new train or hospital attracts a significant share of the nation's attention. But despite the overwhelming public appetite for more information, it's, it's pretty rare to hear in-depth from the key people that have been involved in those processes, whether that's the politicians, the bureaucrats or even the company CEOs. With Inside Infrastructure, we want to strike a balance between those short segments you commonly see on the news, the three-second clip, the soundbite, alongside the various reports and policy papers that are sometimes the only in-depth information you can get about the nation's infrastructure agenda. Each episode, Adrian and I will be joined by one of Australia's most prominent decision-makers in the sector to provide an inside look at some of the major infrastructure stories and projects that we all use every day, while also taking the time to learn about these fascinating people and their unique paths to the top of the industry. For our first episode, our guest is one of the most recognisable persons in the Australian infrastructure sector. Her professional bio is easily big enough to fill 10 careers, yet somehow she's working on just as many major projects today as at any time during her career. We're speaking, of course, of Dr Kerry Schott, the go-to problem solver of Australian infrastructure. We had a fascinating discussion with Kerry, covering a broad range of topics that reflected the breadth of her career, shaping Australia's public infrastructure sector, from water to energy, transport, telco, and just about any other policy challenge that needed solving. Uh, So, Dr Kerry Schott, welcome to the inaugural episode of Inside Infrastructure. Um, We thought it would be uh, fitting, as you're our first guest and you've been kind of omnipresent in the infrastructure sector for a number of years, we thought it might be useful context for people for you to explain who you are and what you do. I do a lot of things. Uh, At the moment, I'm the chair of the Energy Security Board, which is tasked with implementing the Finkel Review. Um, And what that review is doing is looking at how to introduce more renewable energy into the system and reduce emissions, while at the same time keeping um, power affordable for people and business. Um, There's a number... Alan Finkel and his team set out a whole sort of transition path and there's a lot of work that we're basically monitoring some of it some of it the board's doing itself and a lot of it other people are doing Um, but as usual it sort of needs to be rounded up and coordinated Uh, there are three market bodies in electricity we can talk about later but they haven't always coordinated together as well as they should so the other role that I've got is basically trying to get people to cooperate and work together Um, The other things that I do, I'm on the board of NBN, which is a very, perhaps the largest infrastructure project in the nation, uh, which is, no one thinks of it like that, but when you've got a connect, a telco connection to every home and every business uh, in the whole country, um, it's an undertaking. Done about 8 million so far, I understand. Yeah, we're pretty close to halfway. We will be finished the rollout by 2020 then we'll become an operating company and start upgrading the network. Just a bit like painting the Harbour Bridge. Once it is, got to it is. And the technology in Telco changes so quickly that you never quite know um, what bits of the network might be overtaken with something else. Um, the other thing that I do, which is um, not really as much in the public eye as those two things, is to chair more bank intermodal, which is a very major... Um, intermodal terminal that's aimed at getting um, more containers from Port Botany moved by rail um, to Moorbank and um, it will help Port Botany cope with the growth in container traffic and it will also get more trucks off the road and it will serve as a hub for um, interstate and regional containers coming through towards Port Botany and there's more uh, freight being moved agricultural freight in containers now than used to be the case. So for anybody listening um, kind of around the world to this podcast, um, so Port Botany is the major port in Sydney and, and Moorbank's kind of an inland port? Is that yes, that? it's about um, um, half hour drive um, along a very congested motorway at the moment. Um, port Botany is the second largest container port in Australia behind um, Port Melbourne and uh, growing rapidly, about 8% a year. You've obviously forgotten to mention your major substantive position as patron of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia as well. <laughs> that's right, and that's an enormous effort trying to be a patron for you guys. <laughs> so how do you balance, though, all the uh, 
the various roles that you've got. There's that, that's three Sounds three infrastructure busy. sectors. You sound pretty busy. I'm very busy at the moment, and um, I think the way that I've been balancing them over the last twelve months is actually not very well, frankly, uh, right. because I've been too busy. But I've been relinquishing roles as I go along. I have been on the board of T Corp, which is the debt fundraiser and the funds manager for the New South Wales government until recently and um, that responsibility is gone. Interesting job. And I'm currently the chair of Sydney Metro but I will go from that in a few months time. I'm really just in an interim role there until we get a new board appointed. You know the ESB was kind of a you were called upon to take on that role. Tomorrow the PM calls and says there's another policy challenge that needs solving well what, what do you do how do you, you how do you say decide? i'm sorry my dance card's full <laughs> that's okay so now you're finally you're finally full i am uh, absolutely it. full yes <laughs> do you find there's a, an overlap between the things that you do are they quite distinct sectors across the list of things that you mentioned they're all infrastructure sorts of things actually and there is um there is quite an overlap um and it's interesting that different sectors run into quite similar problems and similar skills shortages at the moment, particularly in Sydney where there's so much going on. That's when stuff's in the kind of build phase, mm. that's the shortest. Yeah. So you take lessons from one and, and apply them to the other? You found that to be quite um, frequent? It's not, it's not as direct as that, but you do learn ways of getting around problems that you can use in other places. And which one is occupying most of your time at the moment? Is that the ESB? Yeah, the Energy Security Board, definitely. See, that one, that feels a bit different to the others in that it's, a, it's an existing market. There's a lot of infrastructure in place. I mean, in, in dollar terms, like tens of billions of dollars worth of infrastructure, but there's a big transition happening. It's a bit different in that it needs a really solid policy underpinning, which it doesn't have at the moment. The, the market more broadly or the ESB or the, the, the climate the policy? The electricity would... industry more okay. broadly. And it doesn't have it because of the... It's quite interesting because of the changes in the industry. Um, renewable energy is by far the cheapest to build and the cheapest to supply. So it is. So long as it's sunny and windy, it dominates other forms. But the challenge is to make sure that, as we all know, that we've got dispatchable power when it's not sunny or windy, and that means storage, hydro or batteries, uh, gas, um, and if um, low emissions coal was cheaper, um, that would be an option, but it doesn't stack up against the others at the present time. So as it currently stands, then, the likelihood of someone stumping up and building a new coal-fired power station is fairly low? It's low unless a government pays for it. The, the um, commercial operators uh, w- wouldn't do it. There's a pro- proposal from is it ERM Power just recently. At w- w- what level of subsidy would that proposal require, do you, do you guess? You um, have to estimate. <laughs> I haven't looked at it very closely, but the cost per megawatt of the power that they're um, proposing is very high compared to other um, available sources. It's very hard to beat a combination of zero cost, solar and wind, with gas or hydro against um, coal. And the the problem with coal, apart from its emissions factor, is that Coal plants have to run all the time. That's that's the way they work. And for about six hours of the day, they are making no money. Mm-hmm. They're not getting dispatched. And so they then have to make money through the evening and morning peak and during the evening when very no-one's using much power. And it, just recently up. in Victoria, they've even failed to do that during the most expensive expensive time of the day. They, they, well, they're not as not, reliable. Yeah, that's not surprising because the plants in Australia were built to last for 50 years and most of them are banging up against that age ceiling. And what happens is that they therefore fail more regularly. And the other thing that's happening is that the companies are not spending as much money on maintenance as they might because they're not making enough money out of their plant. So, so in the, just in layperson's terms then, the, the fix to that problem is to not just have the price based on how many megawatts of power you feed in, but on the availability 
of that power. That's right. So that would mean that the coal-fired power would be paid based on it being there and available. There. And solar, there would be a, a difference in the price because it, it's only on when the sun shines. And that's basically the foundation of a capacity market, but it's also, which we don't have, but it's also... Well, they do, they do in WA, to They some do extent. in WA, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's also the um, idea behind the reliability part of the maligned NEG, uh, which will be in operations by June. Right. And right, the NEG is only half dead, so that the reliability part of the NEG will be in place. And that means that if you're, a, if you're somebody who sells electricity, you must have it, your load must be covered at all times. You can't sell power you don't have, basically, strange as that may seem. Can we, can we <laughs> dive into that a little? Because I, I feel like I'm pretty interested in energy and I struggle to explain the neg. It's, um, it's, you know, I've always trusted that if, if Kerry Schott is advocating for it, it must be the right way to go, but it's still, a, it's a challenge to explain it relative to something like the carbon price. Can you talk us through the mechanics of it, um, how it works and what, what it'll achieve? Well, the, the neg had two parts to it. The first part was the reliability part. So if you sell electricity, your AGL or your some small retailer, um, then um, you must have the load that you're selling covered at all times, which means you must be certain you've got power there, which means you have to have it contracted. Right. So that means that people must contract not just with wind and solar, but also with hydro or gas or coal. And that obligation is on the retailer? It's on the retailer. But they have, there's a very um, active contract market, um, so they must have their contract covered. So any solar farm, for example, is no longer allowed to sell its uh, energy unless it also has firming capacity already um, it can, arranged? It can or... sell its energy, but the person it's selling it to has to make sure that if the sun's not there, it's got something that is. And what are the forms of um, firming that, that can provide that? Well, it's, it's, um, conceptually it's very simple. It's either batteries uh, or... Um, hydro or gas or yeah. coal. It presumably it excludes kind of force majeure type events if a, if a power station trips or... It does, but force majeure events, unplanned outages, you should have covered because everybody knows you're going to have them. So it's like an insurance thing. So they're not predictable, but they are certain. Yeah. That's the reliability side of it. The other thing that they were obliged to do was to make sure that the load that they were selling was not above a particular emissions intensity. Right. And the level of that intensity was set so that the industry would meet Paris Agreement commitments. Um, and it turns out that if you do that, you can work out what the intensity of your load needs to be. So um, if your load is all coal, then you're going to need to make sure that you've got enough um, renewables or zero emission stuff to be able to... Um, meet the requirements. And if you're um, very full on renewables, then you can take a little bit of coal in your load. So you've basically got to adjust your load to meet an emissions target and um, and also the reliability. So that emissions target is implemented effectively as a form of um, emissions trading. It's not the obligation is what is what can be can be traded to some extent. The obligations can be traded and would be traded so that if you've got a very low emissions intensity load, you could um, do some trading with somebody beside you who you know has got very heavy intensity load. And between you, you can agree to share. But you can't trade outside the sector, outside the energy sector. An aluminium smelter can't trade with a, a retailer. To a, to a limited extent, there are trading certificates called ACUs, um, which um, cover things like trees and other things. Um, and to a limited extent, you can do that. But in in the NEG, as it was designed, the amount of ACUs you could trade was very limited. I personally think if you move to a higher intensity target, um, which the Labor government have said they would do, then um, you would it, it would work better if you allowed more um, other types of trading. So it gives people more options. Because that's one of the that's one of the concerns about the the neg and the climate discussion in general is that it only really targets the energy sector. But the, Australia as a the 26 to 28 percent commitment is for the, the, the 
whole economy's emissions. What, what does um, is the NEG useful for targeting the rest of the economy's emissions, or, or exclusively for energy? And we have to figure something else out elsewhere. It's really focused on energy. The three emitting sectors are energy, transport, and agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, insofar as transport's becoming more electrified, as it is. Heating energy, heating energy is a really good idea because it picks it will in time with electric vehicles and Sydney metros and things like that pick up more transport. Mm-hmm. Agriculture, I think, is a challenging sector. Okay. But um, it makes sense to really get the electricity sector sorted out because it's the easiest and it also flows across into transport. Now, I think there'd be a few Prime Ministers that would disagree that it's the easiest... Uh, former Prime Minister's <laughs> spring to mind. So we've, we've spoken about the life and structure of the NEG. Maybe let's talk about a bit about the partial death. You have to remember that it got through the party room twice and the reason that it was then uh, rejected was because um, a small group of people threatened to cross the floor and the government wasn't prepared to take it into the House um, where it probably would have been supported by the opposition. Who knows? Um, well, they have announced their support effectively yes. since then. So. And you ask about um, a, an emissions trading scheme and a clean energy target. The problem with both of those things is not um, the implementation of them, it's the politics of right. them. And there are various words like Voldemort that are not to be used <laughs> in, this, uh, in this world. And an emissions intensity trading scheme is one, and a clean energy target is another, and carbon price is definitely another. What is that? What is it about energy that elicits this very emotional response? Because you you voice your frustration with the needs. I have no idea, no. Is it because as a concept, without mentioning carbon pricing and energy trading others, it's done for, I mean, at least three prime ministers. Uh, It's been at the core. It's been the issue that people have attached to it. It's been the, the... demise of three Australian Arguably more. Yeah, and arguably more if you you go back through history. It does seem like one of those things where why would a politician take it on now as a subject? Is it just non-negotiable that someone's got to fix it? Keeping in mind that there is, as you've said, the trajectory is on the way down anyway. It might not be as efficient as with a policy, but the trajectory is on the way down anyway. Do you feel like they'll they'll just avoid it and let it let it happen inefficiently but slowly? No, I think the problem with not having a policy is that there's virtually a standstill in investment going on. So what I've described as anarchy actually is you've got an enormous amount of renewables coming into the system, but no one is being encouraged to build um, hydro pump pumped hydro or gas or batteries come to that. And it's interesting that the only new money for that type of generation is coming from South Australian government mm-hmm. uh, on the battery front and um, Snowy 2 being a very huge pumped hydro scheme. So it's government and the industry which would normally be investing um, is so uncertain about the future that it's very difficult for them to make those decisions. And so... You mentioned before that the carbon price emissions intensity scheme, etc., they're like the third rail at the moment, in terms, at least in terms of terminology for Australian politics. Would would either of those options be effective in incentivising the right kind of investment? It's not so much whether they would work. They 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 do work elsewhere, and they would work. But the issue is having a policy that stays there. Um, for the foreseeable future so that the players in the industry can see what the rules of the game are and get on with it. That's absolutely all that's needed. We're the only country that's managed to um, repeal a carbon price. So that's the the, the gist of what you're saying, is that just pick something, an effective something, but pick it and stick to it. Yes, and that seems to have been impossible... For the last 15 years. I've got one more question. So don't get too optimistic. <laughs> so, but, but is there anywhere else that has the capacity market that we could, you know, that works, that we could say, well, that's the example. Well, WA does. For. There's a lot of, Texas yeah. does. There's a lot of capacity markets. They've done their own sort of assessment of that capacity market in the Swiss, mm. the, the Southwest Interconnected System, and there's um, effectively the debate comes down to how much capacity do you, do you need to have in reserve? And um, it, it, it's argued sometimes that they have too much. 
Um, is there a, is there a risk that we'd be we, we'd be reserving too much capacity and maybe it wouldn't be efficient? There is a risk. Australia's actually got a very sophisticated energy market, and the reason why there's some hesitancy about moving quickly to a capacity style market is that it's a different type of market to the one we've got. So I think what we need to do is try to preserve the best of the market that we have got, which has in the past and will do again, deliver lower prices, um, but also make sure that the the value of um, capacity and availability is, is there and recognised. And we are edging towards that. And you'll see debates. Um, um, just last week, the operator was saying that um, they think there's an argument to have a higher reserve. Right. And as long as that's transparent and people can and see how that's... it's not too high and people can yeah. see how it's determined, then the yeah. investors know what they're doing and the, yeah, the public right. is comfortable with that as well. So, Kay, we can we'll come back to energy maybe later, but I'm interested in how someone who started out as a maths teacher has ended <laughs> up uh, chairing the Energy Security Board and trying to solve the energy trilemma. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about maths, maths teaching, PhDs. Well, I didn't actually start out as a maths teacher. I started out as a phys ed teacher because okay. I was good at tennis. <laughs> um, it's quite a transition. Yes. And I wanted to uh, do maths at university. And um, I was 15 when I finished school because my mother was a teacher and had used school as a childminding facility. <laughs> so I started school very early and never repeated. So I ended school very young and I was below the age at which Sydney University would accept right. people. And they were very reticent about taking somebody from the country um, to enrol. So I did phys ed and started doing maths and physics at night at the University of New South Wales. Wow. And then the education department sent me to DAPTO which in my second year out, which is a very large school and was quite a difficult school at that time. And How old would you have been then? 18 or 19. And that was the end of my maths and physics pursuits because I couldn't get to evening classes. So I enrolled at the University of New England and finished my degree in maths um, by correspondence, basically. And... Um, went in for a year full-time at the end of it. So when I graduated in maths, uh, was in an arts degree, which wasn't really what I'd anticipated, but that was fine. And I was 20 or 21 at that stage. Were there many women studying maths at that time? Oh, there were a few. Um, often as part of... New England then was very good at rural science and um, courses were very biased towards agriculture and statistics mm -hmm. and things that um, scientific farming would be using. So there were quite a lot of people doing maths as part of statistics and so on. So, um, I mean, you know, 10 or 15%. Right. So, so you... Probably more people doing maths than economics, actually. Right. And I did economics, which was what I ended up majoring in as a postgraduate because... Where was that? At New England... Uh, started it at New England, but a friend suggested I do it as a fill-in in my arts degree because it was easier than philosophy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my road to economics. What was the, the point that you, that you changed from teaching to working in the public sector? Well, I went from teaching to um, being a student, and then I worked at the Reserve Bank for some time, a uh, year, 18 months or something, and they had a, they had a policy of sending their graduates overseas to do postgraduate work. Right. And um, the year that I was in, um, Gillian Broadbent was in that year, as was Ian McFarlane was a year behind us, and a whole number of people that became quite important in the finance sector. And the Reserve Bank was trying to build up expertise in the Australian financial sector, which was very undercooked at that stage. So I did um, postgraduate work and then came back the head of the Reserve Bank Research Department was then in Prime Minister and Cabinet and he brought me back to work on policy after my doctorate. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to academe and then, you know, I sort of flipped backwards and forwards. And you've never felt 
sort of more interested in academia or, 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 or the public sector or the private sector? You're, you've moved kind of freely between all three throughout your career? I found uh, universities quite soul-destroying um, in a way because they had... <clears throat> I was teaching at University College London, which is actually quite a wealthy university, but um, we had very big budget cuts and the morale was dreadful and Australian universities were even worse at that time. So um, that that trying to work in that sort of environment is, was quite difficult. Um, so I really don't miss academia one okay. bit, really. Um, <laughs> but... Um, when I left the public service, I took a job. My first job as a was a, an investment banker with Whitlam Turnbull. That's right. And That's Malcolm Turnbull's uh, investment yeah. fund. And that was a good entry for me because they were all policy wonks, and policy was what I was interested in. What, so what kind of stuff were you working on there? The first job that I did was to uh, privatise um, A&L Ports, mm -hmm. which um, owned A&L was a government-owned. Um, company that owned all of the ports around the company, country, container ports. Um, so we packaged them all up and sold them to what became Patrick's. Oh, they were, they were Commonwealth-owned? Yeah, they yeah, were Commonwealth-owned. So that uh, s seems to have started off kind of a, a niche area of expertise for you in, in terms of privatising or, or, or corporatising at least public public assets, making them more efficient. Is that, yeah, is that where it I kicked spent, off? I spent probably, I spent over the next 10 years corporatising and privatising and there was, there was work that a lot of investment bankers didn't like because they're long projects, they take a long time and, but they're very, they're very interesting um, and very fulfilling once you've sort of done it all. But the privatisation route was interesting because it started off in industries that were competitive uh, like banking and insurance and so on. And then once the state governments mainly had run out of those competitive um, industries, all the state banks and state insurance companies and the like, um, everybody then moved in a quest for more money into things that needed to be properly regulated uh, and were harder. And that was all the infrastructure work, like airports, ports, toll roads and so on. And then that was that was that sort of second wave that really took me heavily into infrastructure. Right. And they started doing public-private partnerships on schools and hospitals and so on. You spent some time at Deutsche Bank. And yeah. We're kind of interested in Deutsche Bank because it's next week we're talking to Scott Charlton. There's yourself, um, Mike Baird. There's there's others. Deutsche Bank it seems to have produced a lot of kind of the, the kind of leading names in the infrastructure sector, particularly in New South Wales, but but nationally as well. What, yeah. what is it about Deutsche Bank at that time that produced? I don't even think it was planned particularly. It just happened that there was a large group of us that were all doing similar sorts of things. Um, and we were one of the leading houses for um, selling banks and insurance companies and electricity sector and ports and airports and um, along with Macquarie at the time, we were probably the two leading banks in that. Is there something that you, that, that you get from investment banking that, that uh, you know, you can't get anywhere else? I mean, it's, uh, it, there's the, the, list, the, the list of names that have led the sector is, is quite extensive, whether it's Deutsche Bank or not, but it's, um, there's something that's going on in there that you guys, you guys learn something about infrastructure that no one else is able to learn it to, to such a degree. You get given a lot of responsibility for your age and you get given as much of it as you want and are able to handle. Um, I think one of the things that's come out of the Hainrock Commission that I think is very interesting is the, it, it, is the way that Macquarie has been so good at risk management and that's actually pretty true of the part of investment banking that I was in, we were always very conscious of the risks for us and for our clients. Um, and you learn that, that's sort of one of the basic things that you learn very quickly. Um, and you work in small teams, so there'd be, you know, just three or four of you um, working on something and you're basically just given a lot of responsibility and get on with them. So you, you um, emerged out of that experience and, and a couple of other roles as kind of a, 
as I mentioned before, you know, the, the, the problem solver of Australian infrastructure. And, and in a bipartisan way, I think you were one of two members of the NBN board to survive a change of government. It seems like between yourself and maybe David Gonski, any prickly policy issue that governments have, you're straight on the phone to, to, to one of the two of you. What do you think it is that, that um, enables you to be so trusted by the public and both sides of, of, of politics um, across the infrastructure sector, whether it's water, energy, telco, whatever it is? What, what do you think it is about your career that's put you in that position? Um, I don't know. I think it's just being honest uh, about and straightforward about things. I've never played games or um, said things that, you know, were had to be said politically or whatever. I just... Um, Cause you, you, I'm you... just there as a policy person and ministers don't have to take my advice. They can do what they like, but one thing they do need to do is listen. Right. And then if they want to do something else, that's fine. Because you do, you know, privatisations are not generally well received in, in, in media. Um, and that's been your, certainly your experience that you've, you've, you've led a lot of those. Um, and yet... Um, the public still, you know, you, you, I think you led the New South Wales Commission of Audit, the review into election funding, the, you sit on just about every project advisory board. Um, and I guess that there was also the experience with Sydney Water. It, it, um, you came out of the, the, the ICAC hearings with, uh, as, as like you said, the most honest person in there. Is there, I guess I'm, I'm forgetting if there's a question here, but it just it seems like a very unique position that, that you've got that, that no one else has managed to achieve. I've just been lucky, I think, with uh, the opportunities that I've had. So I've happened to be in places when things were happening. Right. And the funny thing, the well, strange thing about the Sydney Water experience was that I'd left investment banking because I just got completely sick of travelling. Right. It sounds bizarre, but when you're on um, a flight to Hong Kong or China pretty well every week, it just runs you down. Um, so I took a job on um, basically advising the New South Wales government on infrastructure and managing their balance sheet, which was woeful. And um, When was that, sorry? Early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And at the time... And it's still the case in many governments, they don't pay much attention to their balance sheet. So while there's a number in there for physical assets, they really didn't know what they owned and what condition they were in and if they were in poor condition, how they were basically being looked after. And you could see it driving around. I'd windows in hospitals needing a coat of paint and just silly things that if they're not done, it's going to cost you a great deal more in five years' time. So... Um, I was brought in to really work on the physical assets side of the balance sheet and uh, that work has been largely completed now but the government honestly didn't know what it owned, including right. property. So things would just turn up and nobody <laughs> would know who owned it or it was in some government department's name that had long been defunct or, you know, it was just unreal really. Um, so I did that work for some time in Treasury Okay. And then um, was offered the job at Sydney Water, which I was really pleased to take. It was um, a chance to sort of do your own thing, which is good. The job as a managing director yeah. of, of yeah. Sydney Water. So. Yeah. What, what do you feel is your was your legacy there? Because you were there for quite a while as managing director. It's. Um... I was there for five years, and there were two things that I was very proud of, which I think Sydney Water is very proud of too, was... First of all, we were in the worst drought since Federation and to meet the needs of the city, um, we put in an enormous number of recycled water plants and it's not widely known that the water treatment plants in Western Sydney are all tertiary plants. You could drink that water. Um, the water discharges into the Hawkesbury are very clean. So not causing weeds to grow. But it could be it, we could be using it for our drinking water supply. Well, you you could, and other countries do. Um, we don't really need to at the moment, but it's being used for agriculture and other purposes. People have a bit of a emotional reaction to think they're drinking water that's been recycled. But if you're in London, you're drinking water out of the Thames, which has been through about 
five kidneys probably <laughs> before it gets to you. I think Singapore recycles about a quarter of theirs into their oh, not potable so supply. Much. They say they do, but it's more oh, okay. like five percent. <laughs> uh, um, they're very good on their publicity. Right. But it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it's not quite. We'll recycle the adverts. Not quite what they say. Yeah. It was clear that we needed to do a few things. We needed to increase the water supply, recycle water, um, desalination, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, we needed to cut demand, so we put in dual flush toilets and aerated taps everywhere. Shades of NBN actually going into everybody's houses to do this. Can you just talk about that for a sec? Because that Sydney Water, you know, it was a corporatised entity when you were there. Well, yeah. certainly more corporatised when you left than, than when you started, of course. Um, you've got a profit incentive. Your charges, uh, user charges, charged for supply and, and quantity of water. Um, how do you balance that incentive? Because your revenue, you, you effectively decrease your own revenue by going out and giving everyone dual flush toilets. Well, you do, but it's cheaper, the um, cost per litre of saving that water, the demand-saving element, was cheaper than the supply side. Okay. And what we did was we optimised across um, demand cuts, supply, different types of supply, uh, dam water is by far the cheapest because the dams are already built and it just flows downhill largely. Um, and recycled water, you can get in all different costs, as you know, from low cost to so high it's really silly to do it. Um, and um, desal, which is sort of in about the middle of the recycled water pack. And so I was really, to, just to get back to the question, the thing that was I was really proud of was that we got the city through the worst drought since right. Federation didn't run out of water, did have quite severe restrictions for a while. Um, we, we went from using 600 gigalitres a year in Sydney down to about 500, um, and everybody's used to aerated taps and showers that don't knock you off your feet and so on. Um, dual flush toilets and that's a legacy that's very helpful um, and I was very proud about desal because <clears throat> I'm very pleased that it's coming on again and when it was built it was built Sydney has a very strange rainfall pattern and we have a drought really severe drought every 50 years or so and we have a drought just a regular drought about every seven years and when they coincide, as they did in the 2000s, it's really bad. Um, but we thought when the desal plant was built that it would be off for about five to eight years. You can't predict exactly. And that is exactly what's happened. Um, and um, we thought that it probably should come on about a 70% dam level because it's not a huge plant. It just provides a certain amount of water to replace the dam water. Have, have we it, used it yet? No, but it's now turned on. Dam levels went down to 60, which is the new turn-on okay. thing. So they're on notice and they're gearing up to supply. So they said it takes about four months to get it, takes a, it, it takes a It takes a while. Um, they'll have some desal water before that. You just um, It has membranes that have to be soaked and checked and um, so on. And this sounds really silly, but people can taste the difference Okay. in where their water comes from, what dam it comes from, and um, the desal water needs to be tasted to make sure nobody can tell the difference. Right. And there are people who are water tasters, that too. not at Sydney Water, but that's their job. <laughs> so professional water professional tasters. Professional water tasters. Great work if you can get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, well, it depends what the water tastes like. That's right. I'm not entirely yeah, sure it's great that's work. Right. <laughs> um, and... Um, it's very good to see that the work that the scientists did about the weather and the droughts and everything is actually playing out pretty much as everybody said it would. So I get very exasperated with the newspapers saying, oh, you know, it's off, and we always knew it was going to be off for seven years or so. And it's sort of the point, it's an insurance policy. You wouldn't That's want right, it to be running all the time. And it's not like Perth where there's really um, no water apart from desal water now. It's just Sydney doesn't have that sort of issue. I was interested, they were saying so the, the dams have just got to 60%, which is the new trigger to turn on, but they're depleting at 0.4% a week. That's right. That seems like a huge, that's amount. A huge amount. And, you know, not, not far between yeah. having enough water and not having enough Well, we water. could have a big debate about when you should turn the desal plant on, but 
the scientists that I've talked about that worked on this always thought it should come on at about 70 because when it's depleting at 0.4, you need, you know, you do need to be able to have a good run at getting them back up again. I'm getting, sort of so, like, uh, like 80 or something. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here. But so the, the, the desalinated water is then put back into the dam system or it's direct no, no, into it's the No, no, it goes straight into the network. And one of the proudest things about building that plant was that um, the environmental work that we did on the discharges into the sea showed quite definitively that it was having no bad impact. But the other thing that we did that was great was we put in huge pipelines from that plant through to Erskineville, right through the inner city. And while it disrupted people briefly, um, we did that without people noticing much. And it goes, uh, the desal water goes into the water system directly at Erskineville. <clears throat> and it's then distributed through the CBD and mainly eastern suburbs. My, my sense is it's the desal plant and the desal plants around the country, in fact, were one of those things that at the time caused a huge amount of controversy. Yeah. But in 15, 20, 30 years' time, yeah. people will say that's an enormous legacy that was yeah. built for Sydney. Well, people won't notice, yeah. Particularly in light of changing weather patterns and a changing climate. It's a, an important insurance policy that that an enormous metropolis like Sydney needs. On policy in water, so a lot of the other sectors that you've spoken about and your experience in investment banking was privatising mm. things or dealing in, in markets mm. that were um, competitive and private or, or natural monopoly type mm. assets that were privatised. Australians seem to think of water differently, or at least Australian politicians seem to think of water differently. I come from a country, the UK, where the whole water sector is under private ownership. Um, I've lived in Australia for 10 years. I'm still confounded by the fact that everything in the water sector, um, from an ownership perspective, appears to be um, public. Do you have any insights to that? Why is it different to any other sector? Is it different to any other sector? Um, It may. I mean, water is something that the continent is so short on, it might be that. Um, and certainly there's never been any any appetite by politicians to privatise water. The the What people perhaps don't realise is that behind the government-owned Sydney Water and other water companies, there is an enormous amount of private ownership so that the recycled water plants are privately owned and the wastewater plants are many of them privately owned and the treatment plants that the water gets treated in are privately owned. So, um, and a lot of the, all of the maintenance, uh, not all of it, but a huge amount of maintenance is contracted out. So there's not, you know, it's, it's a really so mixed model. private participation, but the ownership. Huge amounts, yeah. Yeah. But, So when you look, you did your work looking at balance sheets in state governments, mm. not on a specific level, but more generally, mm. you would look at those water businesses and say there could be some different structuring there that could release capital or...? There's not as much as you might think, I think, because so much of it is private already. So Sydney Water is, is in many cases, an asset owner that's yeah. allocated all responsibility for the actual doing to, mm. to various private sector players, mm. is that? So there's not much left for other than potentially changing ownership, which wouldn't, which wouldn't change all that much on the ground because Veolia and Trility and... Degremont are doing all the, doing That's much right. of the work anyway. Yeah, is that is that uh, something that you that you changed while you were there, or was it already uh, set up in that way? It was way? already well underway. Prospect Water Treatment Plant had been, in fact, was probably the first PPP in the state. Not that people recognised it as such, but, right? Um, and that was mid nineties, right? Before people knew what PPPs P- were. Yeah, that's right, exactly. It's interesting. PPPs is a concept have kind of taken a hit recently to the extent that anybody understands what they are um right now for people that aren't familiar in the center of sydney down george street we have a, a light rail project that's um uh, overdue on timing um is a ppp and it, it, that one seems to be the lightning rod for frustrations people say well that one's not gone great it's a ppp therefore ppps aren't great have we seen the death of the ppp do we need to reinvent them what's the i don't think so i do think we need to look at the various pieces of the ppp jigsaw because some parts of it aren't working very well Um, and you see it with light rail you see that the um, company that runs the public the private part of the partnership really doesn't have much power during the construction phase. 
and that's a feature of most PPPs in construction phase. All power rests with the with the builder. Um, once you pass that phase, and you're moving into commissioning and um, often um, more sophisticated operational stuff, um, the power of the contractor is gone. But while while there's one member of PPP Co that has so much power, you can if strife happens, there doesn't seem to be any way in which it's easy to fix it. And I think you see it a little bit with the hospital PPP operations. I'm not um, that familiar with the difficulties that seem to be occurring in Northern Beaches, but the North Shore Hospital struggled a lot with its operational um, side of things. So there's just some areas that need to have a look at. But they're things to iron out rather than to mm. discard the... Yes whole model um i just want to briefly go back to energy security and energy yeah. and it is a, a market in transition and we've said there's a some political issues and some structural issues where to from here one of the things that was interesting at the last coag council meeting was that new south wales um suggested that the emissions part of the scheme be put back on the agenda and they also suggested that it be put in the electricity law. And if that was the case, and it's agreed by COAG, um, it would be out of the political realm. So if it was in the, if it was in the law, the, I should backtrack a bit, but the industry is, has laws that everybody agrees to, um, and they can only be changed by COAG, all of COAG agreeing, every state government and federal. Um, so if you can get something in the law, it's not going to get changed easily and as a practical matter, probably never. Um, and if you had an emissions um, target or rule, um, like the emissions reduction rule in the NEG in the law, it would be something like um, in the national electricity market, we will ensure that we meet whatever the international commitment is that the federal government has signed up to and ratified. So you could... And then as the Paris Agreement evolves into whatever else it evolves into, so that would run through um, the law. And that's not a bad suggestion because I think the federal government has got so touchy about emissions that it's very difficult for it to cope with. And I think that's true for both sides. You mentioned earlier that previous Prime Ministers have been killed by this, not just Coalition Prime Ministers. So I think that might be one quite useful way forward. And for the, South, the states to, to take a kind well, of a no, leading... Well, no, COAG will take control. Right, through, through COAG, through the, yeah. But it goes into the law and then it's out of everybody's hands. And South Australia has supported it being put on the agenda for the next meeting, so that'll be an interesting one. But... Um, the interesting thing about energy and COAG is that the energy ministers, whatever their political affiliation, tend to be in agreement um, and certainly all were in agreement about the NEG. So they could well find themselves in agreement about putting it in the law in that sort of way and that would give the federal government a way forward. When is that, the, the COAG meeting that it's scheduled for? Uh, I think it's scheduled for April. Just before... Uh potential federal election. Just after New South Wales election. It's an interesting political window, yeah. potentially. Well, uh, I mean, the thing about any sort of COAG meeting is there's always some government in the room who's either in caretaker or about to That's be. Right. Or, you know, so. Yeah, so for, for context for um, international listeners to our pod, the one thing Australia doesn't have a shortage of is elections. Um, so we have all the states and territories, some on three-year and four-year terms, and then the federal's maximum of three years. So we have plenty of elections to thread the needle on prickly policy issues. One of the things that makes energy policy so difficult is that it's a federal system and each of the states has enormous power in the energy sector, which it has basically given away to the national electricity market, but with agreed laws and rules. I do find that very interesting about the, the, the way the energy market works is that, you know, the, um, AEMC, the rule setter of the, the market, has effectively eight shareholder ministers... So it reports to all of them and at the same time kind of none of them because so it's, uh, it's, a, it's very unique in that sense of a, it's kind of a self-regulating 
self-regulating systems sometimes. At other times, governments uh, are intervening. It has power delegated to it which can always be yanked back, of That's course. That's right. So, yeah. And so the, the, I guess the question is, the, 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 let's say some, uh, the, the neg gets adopted, a miracle occurs and at COAG that everyone uh, sings Kumbaya and adopts the neg or some, some version of it. Um, what happens to all those state policies that are, that are currently um, in operation, whether it's a feed-in tariff or, or, or solar policies or whatever else there is? Nothing is the short answer. The states can um, proceed with policies that they have in place. And um, I think historically states have always filled the gap when the federal government has not been doing something. Mm-hmm. And that has happened with emissions reduction. Um, and a lot of those schemes will continue. But you'd find if there was a national policy in place that over time the states would... Um, gradually withdraw as long as they felt that the matter was being addressed. Is the incentive structure designed for that to be the outcome or is in the neg or is it, no, are they no, free you, to do no, as they please? You absolutely have to recognise that the states have power and if they yeah. want to do that, they can do it. I thought it was interesting in the US actually when Donald Trump pulled out of the, the, Paris, the Paris Agreement. Mm. A lot of cities took, uh, and states yeah. took a leadership role That's and right. said, well, yeah. it's, it's the same thing. Yeah, some yeah. of that happening here yeah. as well. It's always interesting to me that the Commonwealth government of various different um, um, political structures, parties and coalitions have always they seem to take a leadership role in a market that they don't really need to lead in because the power is mostly vested with the states. There's some odd politics happening. It's reflecting community attitudes too, of course. Like South Australia has got 50% renewables, which... One of the highest in the world. One of the highest in the world, only behind Denmark. Um, but the other states, and Tasmania is almost 100% because of its hydro mm-hmm. and a lot of wind now, but um, Victoria and New South Wales are fast catching up and just because of the commercial economics of the thing and Queensland um, will do so in due course. We're talking decades. But as coal-fired power stations retire, they will not be replaced um, by high-emitting plant. They'll be replaced by a mixture of things. Um, so... You know, the the industry is evolving and the trick is to make sure we get there without it sort of lights going out at some point. So just on the, the, the retirement of coal, that's been a I guess the biggest sticking point in the in the energy market for the last for the last few years. The um you know, from from the mid two thousands certainly networks were the leading cause of price increases. Now the withdrawal of, of large coal plants uh, are leading to wholesale price increases. Um, there's a lot of debate about the Liddell plant in New South Wales. Um, it was scheduled by New South Wales government to be retired. AGL now owns it and also wants to retire it. And there's pressure on them to keep it open. Um, do you see a commercial case for it to stay open any any longer than, than, than the 2020 or is it 2022 retirement date? I'm sure the commercial case to keep it going would be very slim. Okay. The cost of maintenance... And the, it just the economics behind it <clears throat> would be uh, very difficult. But um, with the national electricity market, what will come in to replace um, Liddell are a number of things. First of all, the interconnection with Queensland is being expanded and work on that is happening now. Um, not construction yet, but all the, all the other work that needs to be done. Um, the operator has put out an um, integrated system plan which is basically changes to the grid so that it can more easily cope with uh, renewable energy coming in from sources that are not in the Hunter or mm. the Trove Valley. I think it identifies renewable energy zones. It around. does. And also what it also does is it upgrades interconnections between the states. And we need that because we have different time zones and we have different weather patterns. So it tends to be the case when it's windy in northern Victoria and South Australia, uh, or when it's not windy there, it's very windy in Glen Innes and that part of New South Wales. So we need to have a system that allows the operator to maximise um, what they're doing. So the integrated system plan is aimed at doing that and work on that. There are four 
immediate projects underway. Um, and on the Liddell front, the interconnection with Queensland is very important, replacement, and it's aimed to get that in place by the end of 21, actually. Um, the other thing is there's two um, gas plants uh, on the drawing board and Snowy 2 will be operating um, if it proceeds by 2025 or a little bit later in my view um, and those things will um, will fix that but right. what we need to then be planning for is the retirement of some of the bigger power stations partly because economically they'll be struggling um, and also partly because they're so old that they will just end up being retired. And in New South Wales, that's Bayswater and Araring, and in Victoria, um, Yulorn and uh, Loyang A, who've both been having maintenance issues this summer. Um, During the, the you know hottest part yeah, of the year. They'll be sort of just keeping those plants running will be a struggle both economically and physically. So, so in your view, there's, there's sufficient... Um, capacity that can be brought on uh, not from coal uh, to replace the, the, the retiring coal plants? Um, I think in my view what we need to do is plan it so that um, we're okay at the moment just. We probably need some more reserves. Um, we need to be very careful not to have too many because that will cost everybody. Um, and we need to make sure that we're planned for the retirement of the generators. And one of the things that Finkel um, recommended was that the generators have to give three years notice of retirement, which is now a rule in the in the industry. So if you're going to retire, you've got to put your hand up and say, I'm going. It's interesting, though, because Liddell has given, you know, effectively 10 years notice of retirement. It's And, and if anything, it seems to have caused more confusion because there's so much debate about whether or not to keep it open. It's How do we avoid uh, that? Well, it's not confusion in the industry about Liddell. They know it's going. They know it's going, but there's confusion about the investment um, in the industry because of the policy being so uncertain. Right. We haven't spoken about the kind of, you've mentioned anarchy in the energy market. One of the things that strikes me is just the amount of rooftop solar, small-scale solar that's going on people's roofs. Yeah. Um, including fair, your roof. Including my own roof. Um, a, a predictable decline in the cost of batteries that will happen over time. What impact does that have in a network that's traditionally been big spinning things at one end of a pipe and consumers at the other? And is that efficient as well? It's having an enormous impact on the distribution companies um, who sit between the big transmission lines and houses and businesses. Um, in South Australia and Queensland and WA, 30% of homes have rooftop solar. And the rest of the world looks at us and can't believe it. it and it's really increasing rapidly. In the sense that there's so much? Mm. Right. And Victoria and New South Wales are sort of in their early 20s and catching up. So um, rooftop solar is uh, power in the land. It's providing over 5% of electricity. And what... What's happening in the distribution companies is instead of having pretty dumb power that went from big generators to homes or businesses, we've now got people with distributed generators everywhere wanting to put power back into the grid. So they've now got power wanting to flow two ways and it is causing all sorts of operational issues for them. So they're engineering problems rather than... They're engineering problems and they're, um, they can be solved but... The distribution companies have had years of being pretty sleepy. So when you sort of think of rapid technology changes and adopters, they wouldn't spring to mind. <laughs> um, but they are now very focused on the issue. And the two distribution companies in Queensland are particularly energetic in this space. Um, and Osgrid in New South Wales is doing a lot of work on it too. So I would think in the next 12 to 18 months we'll see quite a lot of changes at, um, at substation and batteries in the distribution system level um, to be able to do this. And as for what's efficient, it's probably more efficient to have a battery for, say, the street. That's right. Um, the commun a community battery some than... sort of aggregation mm. 
rather than everybody having their own. I can think um, that's it's true of batteries, but, but if I look at my, my roof and the solar panels I have on my roof, the, the payback's about four years, maybe five if it's not particularly sunny. Uh, that, you know, simple maths, a 20% return on investment. You just can't get that anywhere else. It's the thing about getting, if we can get the distribution network optimised, though, we'll save billions of dollars in assets. And, and that hits people's bills. And that, that, can, can we doing just, that will really hit people's bills in a very good way. Can, can we just drill, drill into that a little bit? There's proposals or suggestions from... Um, Grattan Institute has been saying it for a long time, and the ACCC has now said it in their recent report on the electricity market, that New South Wales, Queensland and I believe Tasmania need to in some way take a significant write-down on their network businesses um, in order to reduce, to, in order to get that optimised network price. Do you, do you have a, a view on that? The reasoning behind the ACCC staff is historic, though. It's about the big, the big increase in network charges that were regulated and put in place in those states, New South Wales and Queensland in particular, led the distribution companies to put in more assets, which were not really needed. And the reason that they went in was because they increased the standards and the community didn't want the standards increased and they certainly didn't want to pay for having the standards increased. So we've now got a system that is at a really high standard um, and it's now recognised that it ought not be. So that would mean that the value of your assets... um, should come down. And that's what's behind the ACCC thing. I actually think it's a bit academic because everybody's had to pay for it. And I guess their suggestion is that that you, we can cut their future expenditure, but it's the, the, the expenditure that's already in there that, that we're still paying for is, is somehow... But people will still be paying for it because it's in there. So what they're... And, as a practical matter, no distribution company is going to do it because it drops their revenue. And they, right. So it's an, it's it's a, it's a, it's an idea. They'll all it's... end up in court if they proceed down this path. Okay. Because the companies did it for regulatory reasons that they didn't choose to do it. Yeah. And then next thing, the regulator changes their mind, and so ten percent of your asset base is supposed to go. Well, this is not very good. Yeah, that won't, won't encourage a lot of investment won't down the track. And they legitimately seek compensation that would have to ultimately right. be paid by taxpayers Somebody. rather than energy. And in fact, what has happened is that the companies have said, we're happy to do that, but somebody's got to compensate us. Yeah, which is fair and And somebody who's the government have said, well, we're not compensating you. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> which is fair. Um, so you've worked across ports, energy, water. Um, transport. Transport. Pretty much all the infrastructure sectors. Telco. Telco. Um, what's your favourite type of infrastructure and why? <laughs> I think, I don't, well, I don't think I have a favourite. I think um, um, my favourite projects at the moment are Sydney Metro, which I think is just going to be game-changing for Sydney. And the first stage of that, which comes online around May, um, a successful PPP, Adrian. Under budget too. Under budget, yeah, few. But um, and I'm very proud of the desal project too. I think that's very important for keeping water supply available in Sydney. Um, so I don't sort of really have a favourite industry. So, I just Sydney have favourite things. Projects. Sydney and Metro. Telco is fantastic. I think well, the speed at which the change in telco, I find that fascinating. Is that that I guess ten years ago when the MBM was conceived. You couldn't have foreseen things like 4G and 5G and, and the impact that that will have. Every six months or so, there's a really major change, often often in the kit, so that you don't really sort of see, but that really does allow better better service. You've mentioned that you're um, you're having to give up some of the some of the roles that you hold today, mm-hmm. depending on what happens with the ESB and the and, and the the election. Maybe that role won't take up as much of your time. Are you planning? <laughs> you I pl- don't think that's going to happen. No. Okay. <laughs> well, that's that's great. But is there is there is there? Are you planning to continue taking on new roles? Is there something after energy that you'd like to be involved in, or is is energy going to to, to occupy so much of your time that? No, I think the Energy Security Board. It's a 
it was put in place for three years to implement Finkel. I think we'll do that and I think then COAG needs to have a think about what they want to do with the Energy Security Board. Because um, it's, it's not, it's not a, f- a, formal, a formal board, is it? It's, it's not in the... No. My job at that stage will be will be finished, but um, they may want to change. Insofar as we've been helpful in getting the market bodies to work together better, they may want to think about um, whether they want to put something there that maintains that sort of working together. There's always a tension between the operator and between the people that set the market design and the mm-hmm. rules. Um, because the operator always wants things done yesterday so that operations today are smooth and easy. And the rule maker and the market design people always worry, as you were mentioning, about too many reserves or have we got it so it's functioning correctly and so on. So there's all, And they need to think about it and consult. And there's always this sort of time tension. Thing. So there's plenty left for you to do in energy that, that uh, you don't need to look past that at, at the next project. It's, uh, it's going to be energy for the foreseeable oh, future. I think once I've finished with energy, I'll probably start thinking about retiring. Right. Mm-hmm. Until the next Prime Minister calls. Yeah, no, exactly. no, <laughs> another Commission of Audit, another... No, no. <laughs> um, Kerry, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you very much. We've covered a huge amount of ground. So um, thank you from Ilya and I. We really appreciate Thanks. your time. Thanks, Ilya. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you.